Welcome to another episode of Inside You Miami Medicine. Today, we have an absolutely phenomenal guest. That's Dr. Barbara Coffey. She is the chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. She's also the chief of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the director of the Tourette Association of America Center of Excellence at UHealth, which is our health system, and also, she's an internationally recognized specialist in tics, Tourette's, and related disorders. I'm a big fan of hers because she is such an accomplished individual. She's also the incoming program chair for the American Academy of Child um, and Adolescent Psychiatry, and also formerly Woman of the Year of the same society. So, Dr. Coffey, welcome. This is it's so exciting to have you here this morning. So, so tell the audience a little bit about your journey, how you became to be such a celebrated psychiatrist. Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. And my journey in psychiatry started out, I think, probably back in my undergraduate years. As a high school student, I was interested in medicine. Mm -hmm. I loved science and majored in biology when I was an undergraduate. However, I took Psychology 101 in my sophomore year, and that was it. So I got a double major in biology and, psychi and psychology, and then the rest is history. Fascinating. And where did you grow up? Grew up in upstate New York. Um, my dad was a research engineer at General Electric, which okay. is why that was where we lived. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so... You know, so you get to medical school. Did you always know you wanted to be a psychiatrist at that time because of the experience with psychology, or did you flirt with other disciplines, surgery, medicine, and what did you think? I did, and you'll appreciate this, Dean Ford. I actually started wanting to be a surgeon. <laughs> I remember going to my medical school interviews and them saying, oh, biology and psychology, you must want to be a psychiatrist. I knew nothing about psychiatry at that mm -hmm. point. I spent a summer doing prosections. Uh, I loved the anatomy of surgery, mm -hmm. but I discovered in medical school in my third year, I wasn't crazy about bodily fluids. <laughs> so psychiatry was a perfect, perfect fit for me. You mean you never get exposed to bodily fluids exactly. in psychiatry? Exactly. Well, okay. Well, it's a great story. Great story. So um, tell us about how you came to specialize in your current discipline, yeah. ticks and Tourette's? That's a, also a really wonderful question. I had some early training in psychopharmacology from the NIMH when I started mm -hmm. my faculty position, my the, first faculty the position. NIMH for the for for, National for Institute of Mental, Mental Health. Health, yes. Um, so I learned something as a young psychiatry faculty member about psychopharmacology. So. Dr. Paul Rossman, who was the dean, who was the uh, director of the neurology uh, division, had me come over as a young faculty member and sit in neurology clinic and help him out with seeing kids with various neurodevelopmental disorders. I saw my first patient with Tourette's syndrome in the neurology clinic, and uh, that's really what got me into the field. I'll tell you the story about this patient. He was eight years old, classical symptoms, eye blinking, um, sniffing, squeaking, shoulder shrugs, but he came from a very interesting family. His parents were older at the time. Mom was in her 40s when she gave birth, and dad was in his late 40s. 
they were interesting people. They both had um, previous lives in religious service. Dad had been in a seminary for many years. Mom had been in a convent for many years. They both left, found each other, and had two children. This was the second child. So this child was classically symptomatic, as I mentioned, and he had a very rare symptom of Tourette's, which is called coprolalia, the involuntary uttering of obscenities. But this child... <laughs> yeah, I, I think, uh, ex expand the vocabulary, say it again. It's called coprolalia. We have fancy names for these kinds of things, I which see. means the involuntary uttering of obscenities. Wow. But this child only had that symptom in one place. And can you imagine where that was? I, I, I cannot. Church. Wow. <laughs> Maybe he was not happy about going to church, huh? Neither of his parents were either, apparently, having left their religious orders over the years. And to me, this was just really fascinating. I sort of knew that Tourette's was a genetic disorder, and yet there were major psychological aspects to it. So I wasn't quite sure what to do with the child. Mom and dad were good Catholics. And I said, well, maybe we could try keeping him out of church for a week. And obviously the swearing went away at that point. Fascinating. But, yeah. So just staying at yeah. churches. Right. Okay. Right. Well, this this is indeed um, quite a fascinating story. And I can see why be, it would be so captivating. But uh, just as a point of departure, let's define some of the terminology. What we mean by Tourette's and, and, and tics, because so, I know we're going to get to the difference between those two. Sure. So, first of all, tics are very common mm -hmm. in young children. About 25% of all school-age children will have tics at one time or another. Mm -hmm. A tic is simply an, a semi-voluntary or involuntary movement or sound mm -hmm. that's derived from normal kinds of movements or sounds, but it's just excessive and intense. There's a large group of tic disorders. The most common is what we call provisional tic disorder, meaning the child has had symptoms for uh, more than a month, but less than a year. One year is the turning point beyond which we then diagnose a chronic tic disorder. So provisional before 12 okay. months, chronic after. And about 25% of all children, if you go to a school, will have provisional tics. Tourette syndrome is the most complex of the chronic tics in which you have both motor and vocal tics for greater than one year. The most common uh, sort of persistent tics are motor tics and about Maybe 2 or 3% of the population have motor tics, but about 1% of children have uh, Tourette's disorder. And, and I understand that uh, children with Tourette's also tend to have other uh, comorbidities or associated uh, symptoms. What are those? And, and why is that? Yeah, very interesting question. As um, we were discussing earlier, I started out with my interest in Tourette's in neurology, but found that the other associated problems, such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, bring these kids into psychiatry programs and clinics. Um, so there's a 
numerous amount of co-occurring conditions that we as psychiatrists um, take care of. ADHD and OCD are the two most prevalent ones. I have had a particular interest in anxiety disorders, and that's another condition. We see depression in these kids, so almost the whole range of neuropsychiatric disorders are also present with Tourette's syndrome. <clears throat> so, so is there a genetic basis uh, for these uh, movement disorders, or and and in going back to that child, that was fascinating child who only cursed that church. Is it that um, going to church was a trigger that uh, stimulated some kind of a central point? Because uh, obviously, once you took him away from that milieu, uh, he, was he was fine. fine. So, so I'm, I'm I'm trying to find either the genetic linkage or, or some underlying condition that then uh, gets exposed to a trigger, then you know, this problem becomes manifest. Yeah, it's a great, great question. I think is what is true for so many of our medical conditions is there's an interaction between the genetic loading or vulnerability and environmental triggers or precipitants. We know that Tourette's disorder and persistent tic disorders, which are closely related, have a genetic etiology. We don't know yet what the genes are. I'm part of an international collaborative looking at the genetics of Tourette's disorder. And it turns out this eight-year-old that I saw, who I said, don't go to church for a week, it turns out his dad had very severe obsessive compulsive disorder. So genetically, he was already at high risk. Um, we're actually doing a study in which we're looking for rare variants that might cause Tourette syndrome, in which we enroll what we call um, de novo kids, where the child has Tourette syndrome and neither parent has Tourette's or OCD, since those two things seem to be related in the brain. I, I know you talked about the length of time required for provisional and then chronic and so So how, how does one make the diagnosis um, of the disease in general? I mean, if, if I wanted to do a, a, you know, amateur psychiatrist. How would you diagnose? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting question also. In this day and age of my fancy assessment tools, it's a diagnosis made on the basis of history. Okay. Classical history of onset usually is around age five or six. Um, and typically... Ticks follow a rostral caudal, a head-to-toe progression, starting with eye blinks, then going to the head in general, shoulders, mm. right on down. And the vocal ticks progress from simple to complex, where they start with a sniff or a cough or a squeak, and then develop repetitive phrases, words, and most interestingly, coprolalia, which is actually quite rare. Yeah. Less than 10% of individuals have coprolalia. I just happened to see this kid with uh, a pretty large uh, amount of it. <clears throat> this is great. I, mean, I was totally unfamiliar with the term, so yes. Um, so interestingly, you are also involved in a study looking at uh, how the microbiome may influence manifestation of uh, movement disorders, ticks in particular. So so tell us about the gut-brain uh, axis and, and how it could be implicated 
in Tourette's. Yeah, we are so excited about this concept and so excited to be the first center in the United States, to my knowledge, that are actually working on this. It's not a new concept for tic disorders, but it's relatively new in neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, it originally started with autism spectrum disorder research when uh, clinicians and parents noted that many kids with autism spectrum disorder had constipation or diarrhea or stomach pain. Um, we got involved here because of a colleague um, of mine at the University of Utah who has an animal model for Tourette's disorder, uh, a mouse model in which intercholinergic neurons in the striatum in the basal ganglia are deficient or are lost. And if you prime these mice who he's developed to have these loss of intercholinergic neurons, if you send inflammatory cytokines into their brains, they develop stereotypies, tick-like symptoms. Hmm. So with this animal model, and then two years ago, the publication of a study from China, the only other Tourette's microbiome study that I'm aware of, where they actually looked at 49 kids with Tourette's, 50 healthy controls, and found there were certain types of uh, bacteria in the, in the gut that seemed to be associated with uh, tick severity in these kids. So our study is going to look at this um, in humans, in, in children ages 8 to 15, and we're going to be getting stool samples, blood work, I'm going to send them to the lab where my colleague works at the University of Utah. We're going to actually transplant fecal material into these Tourette-like mice that he's developed, um, both from the healthy controls and from our uh, patients with persistent tics and Tourette's. So, so um, let me be clear to try to break it down for a simple pediatric surgeon, not as sophisticated as a child adolescent psychiatrist. But is it that the absence of this um, cholinergic stimulus um, mm -hmm. um, influence, influences the uh, gut microbiome and predisposes to uh, the preponderance of a particular type of bacteria that in turn uh, will trigger the manifestation of the disease? Or is it the other way around? It's just... Uh, overabundance of one particular type of bacteria actually triggers uh, the brain to start uh, behaving that way. So which came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah, it's a great question. And as with many things in science, we don't know the answer. We're hoping to really map this out and dive down deeply into all aspects. What we do know is that some studies have shown that um, individuals with Tourette's have higher levels of inflammatory markers in general. Cytokines like TNF-alpha, um, other inflammatory cytokines, so just in, in resting state. So we're going to look at that as we look at the microbiome to see if there's an abundance of TNF-alpha, for example, which we think maybe the trigger in the brain. But we don't know what comes first. What's fascinating, as one who has um, studied the gut microbiome, and my research is focused on a disease called necrotizing enterocolitis, and this is an inflammatory condition that affects the intestine, especially premature infants. Um, and 
what we found is that uh, it's not so much the presence of the uh, microbes in the gut, it's the breaching of the gastrointestinal lumen, yes. that, that, that barrier that then leads to this um, uh, exuberant inflammatory response. Then that leads to all of the systemic manifestation of the disease. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, it cannot be just that simple. It's just, well, you know, we have a preponderance of one particular um, bacteria, but, but, but somehow it must be evoking, or maybe there must be a breach of the lumen so that it evokes the kind of inflammatory response that's associated with more TNF alpha and, and, and other inflammatory markers. That must be clearly crossing the gut-brain barrier, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And the blood-brain barrier. The blood -brain. As you know, that's a very protective barrier that keeps out a lot of these um, bacteria and inflammatory markers. And we think there's a permeability that occurs in the blood-brain barrier that also allows this to happen. So I, in the uh, initial attempt to uh, prescribe some kind of uh, suppressor of the inflammatory response to see if that alters um, the severity of uh, the tics, the chronic tics or Tourette's for that matter? Absolutely. The possibilities are antibiotics, for example, would be one way to go. Um, probiotics, which might be pro protective of the blood-brain barrier and the uh, gut barrier. Um, there's a variety of options. In fact, the Chinese who've done this early work in the microbiome found that the treatments that we use mm -hmm. to treat ticks, which are the dopamine receptor antagonists like Haldol and ORAP and Abilify are the newer ones, they too alter the gut microbiota. So what role they play to perhaps exacerbate the inflammatory process, we just don't know. So we're hoping to look at that um, as another manifestation of the need to develop new treatments. We don't have good treatments for Tourette's syndrome, so that's really been part of my interest in, uh, in doing this work. It's truly fascinating to see the evolving linkage of uh, the gut microbiota with a multiplicity of diseases. We see it in, in, in obesity, in cancer, and certainly now in, in all of these uh, diseases of the brain, whether it's Alzheimer's, Lewy body dementia. Absolutely. It's, it's so interesting. And fecal transplants have been used in other disorders right. like, um, you know, ulcerative colitis, certainly the GI disorders, as, you, as I'm sure you know, uh, but even things like rheumatoid arthritis, more systemic illnesses are being addressed with fecal transplants. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity, I think, to have uh, it, this work. Yeah, yeah, but we clearly, um, it, it, it sounds like figuring out a way to stop inflammation, either this inciting event uh, or even after uh, the cytokines have been produced, uh, their impact on, on, on the specific foci in the brain uh, may be quite helpful. Yeah, okay. yeah. Good. So, um, it, uh, apparently, uh, there was an increase in the incidence of, uh, I guess, provisional ticks during the pandemic. Tell me about that. Yeah. Such an interesting story, mm -hmm. really. Um, we know that the pandemic has had major impact upon children's yes. lives. Small children who had to start kindergarten or first grade mm -hmm. uh, at home, 
on Zoom and our teenagers who obviously that part of life and development is a need to socialize with one another. Indeed, we heard that mental health has become one of the critical issues in the pediatric population. Absolutely. And thankfully, there's a lot of attention devoted to that and to the mental health crisis and, and what we need to do. For example, um, teenage girls have been particularly impacted by the, uh, by the pandemic, not being able to see their friends, turning to social media more and more, which has its pros and cons in terms of the impact upon, uh, upon our, our youth. So it's been a major factor in mental health in general in the last three or four years. Um, rising rates of both suicide attempts and um, anxiety and depression with kids coming to uh, the emergency department. And what's the linkage to ticks? So we aren't uh, sure about that. We do know that uh, ticks can be increased by anxiety and stress. Those are usually temporary increases. Um, if you get a child out of that stressful situation, like having to give a speech in school or stand up to bat, you know, playing baseball, that increase in ticks that occurs with that stress will um, remit or um, go away. That said, the stresses of the pandemic have been ongoing and persistent, and I think it's probably contributed to the fact that we've seen an increase in both ticks in general, provisional ticks, but also in a variety of ticks called functional ticks. And, and what's the distinction between provisional and functional, functional. ticks? And, mm -hmm. So uh, let's put it this way. Um, provisional ticks, persistent ticks, Tourette's disorder are fairly well-known, okay. now better understood neurodevelopmental neuropsychiatric disorders. Functional tics are different. Um, functional tics, the way I think of it and the way I tell my patients is the hardware of the brain is fine. Everything's fine. You can't find anything on an MRI or an EEG. But the software, what works, what functions, uh, what apps, so to speak, gets a little out of whack. So these kids may or may not have had a pre-existing tic disorder, but they have a variety of movement abnormalities, sometimes like tics, like eye blinking, but more commonly, and I think this is more the pandemic variety, um, much more dramatic movements, um, collapse, falling on the floor, going to a wheelchair. So it's that rather challenging. So is it the social isolation? Is it uh, an over uh, stimulation from uh, uh, social media and, and watching too much TikTok or whatever it is, Instagram? Are, are these potential triggers for dysfunctional tick disorders? Probably all of the above. Mm -hmm. Probably a confluence of a number of these different factors. Certainly social isolation led teenagers to be more on social media, and that's the only way they could communicate with their friends. Interestingly, the prevalence of functional tick disorders during the pandemic or post-pandemic was skewed toward female adolescents. Uh, typically, Tourette's is a male disorder. Three to four to one is the ratio. Wow. But 
what emerged in the pandemic is teenage girls, typically, who don't have a history of the early age six, seven, or eight onset of ticks, but suddenly collapse or suddenly their limbs are shaking. So we think that phenomenon may have been connected to social media where they're looking at TikTok and they're seeing people who actually had bona fide ticks and kind of taking that on at some level. Not consciously, but perhaps subconsciously. I'm sure there are some concerned parents out there listening to you say, oh my gosh, this is exactly what my child has been experiencing. What do I do about it? How do you treat it? How does it resolve? It's also a very good question. Decades ago, we might have called kids with these kinds of disorders as having a conversion reaction. But that kind of got a bad uh, rep reputation because anyone other than psychiatrists and psychologists would say, oh, you know, it's all in his head. It's really nothing. That's not true. There are brain... Um, uh, activities that are involved in um, functional disorders. So what we do nowadays, <clears throat> there's not a whole lot of research on functional tics. We just published a paper sort of summarizing what we do know last year, but we have an attitude of, well, first of all, the child could have Tourette's. The, the two can co-occur. So we want to look at the history and so forth, as we always do. Secondly, we look for the co-occurring conditions. Quite often, anxiety and depression can be associated with functional tics. Thirdly, we take a proactive, positive approach saying, most kids get over this. Here's what we need to do. And we rally a team of a psychologist, usually who knows how to do behavioral therapy for tics, a physical therapist who can literally help a child get back on their feet, literally. Um, maybe a, an educational specialist who can get the kid who may not be in school working on schoolwork more actively, and um, sometimes medication. Although we don't provide medication for tics, we might want to provide medication for anxiety if we think that's a role. In fact, that really uh, leads me to, to my final question. Uh, until these classic studies... Uh, the results of the classic studies that you are conducting uh, come out in terms of the role of uh, the gut microbiota and inflammation and the manifestation of, of, of ticks and, and, and Tourette's in general. But um, for the parent who's concerned about their child and the lingering effects of the pandemic, how do you prevent? What can we do to minimize the likelihood of developing um, these functional tick disorders? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. And TikTok. <laughs> yeah. Much as we think this has been, <clears throat> excuse me, that TikTok has been a factor in other social media, we know that there are good things about social media and they bring kids together and they kept kids together during the pandemic. So that might be a little bit um, uh, too much. Um, that said, I think we need to bring to parents an awareness that these kinds of things can occur. Um, I refer all of our newly diagnosed families to the Tourette Association of America, their website, Tourette.org. They have tons of information available for parents, um, including information on functional tics. Um, we 
developed our paper on functional tics in collaboration with the TAA. So we try to educate people as the biggest preventive factor and help patients just uh, and parents become alert to the fact that this could occur. And it doesn't mean it's all functional tics or it's all persistent tics or Tourette's. There could be a combination there. So education is always the, the key until we know more about what's actually going on in the brain. Barbara, this has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, I must say I have been enlightened. Now I know the difference between functional, uh, provisional tics and, and, and Tourette's and, and all because of your very lucid and, and clear and concise presentation. Uh, so thank you for all that you do and thank you for being such a brilliant child adolescent psychiatrist. And thank you for being the chair of this great department and what you're doing to elevate the profile of the middle school. It has been a complete delight for me to talk to you this morning. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And this concludes our episodes of Inside U Miami Medicine. Join us next time for another fabulous interview with one of our outstanding guests. Thank you.